Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy Jackson Beverly. Join me as I chat with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities and the environment. You're listening to episode number 75. T.L. Baquet is a criminal defense attorney turned writer. Located in Oakland, California, most of his practice involves defending accused murderers. His outlook on the criminal justice system's need for reform, the unbalanced jury selection process, and his fight for those receiving harsher sentences than they deserve is what fuels his writing. Baquet's writing is inspired by his time in the courtroom, where he has tried over 20 murder cases. His skill in delivering closing arguments and presenting the stories of his clients to the jury make him a master storyteller. Good Lookin', a Joe Turner mystery, is his debut novel and weaves his expertise from the courtroom into the page of a thrilling mystery. He holds degrees from the University of the Pacific and Georgetown Law School and serves annually on the faculty of the Stanford Law School Trial Advocacy Clinic. Hi, TL, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mandy. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, and thanks for being here. I know you're a busy man. I have heard from lawyer friends that after finishing law school, the last thing one wants to do is pick up a book and read. Did you have this experience? And if so, how many years did it take you to start reading something for pleasure and then decide to write a novel? How long did it take me to to enjoy books again? That wasn't a very long period of time, just because the um, the type of reading that you're doing in law school to me is completely different than pleasure reading. And so I was all too eager after law school to to get back to some very relaxed, entertaining pleasure reading, um, which is far different than reading you know the tax code or something something terrible like that. And then. Um, so I've always liked to write creatively, but I think law school in a lot of ways um, and being a lawyer for 20 years has gradually sapped a lot of the creativity from me, but it was always in there somewhere. So when I eventually got around to deciding to write creatively again, it was very, it was refreshing and, and liberating. Do you find it a release in some way uh, to the stress and grind of criminal law? I think so. Yeah. As I get older, the, the releases um, are getting, you know, there's not always exercise <laughs> on a daily basis. And so definitely it's, it's a source of relaxation for me. Yeah, I understand. Some days it's just really hard to find time to do the things that you know you need to do, exercise or relax or read a book for fun. Now, I'd love to hear about your publishing story for your novel, Good Looking, from finished manuscript to agent to publisher. So, um, probably like a lot of debut author stories, it is fraught with rejection. I penned a, a, uh, my first novel, which didn't sell. I couldn't get an agent for it. I couldn't get an independent publisher to take a look at it, which was, you know, quite depressing. But I realized that I wrote um, not for sort of an end product like publication, just for me, then it sort of gave me perspective. So I, wrote another one. That's good looking. And um, finally found an, an independent publisher in New York that liked it and an editor that I worked well with. So it was uh, smooth sailing from there, but didn't start out that way. 
I think as with any creative endeavor, you've really just got to stick to it and keep working at becoming better at your craft. So let's talk a little about your novel, Good Looking. I would love to know what's behind the title. So Good Looking is uh, is a phrase that a lot of my clients in the inner city of Oakland use. You've probably heard the term uh, good looking out, um, which means thanks for looking out for me. It's kind of a shorthand. Thank you for looking out for my well-being. That has been shortened to um, good looking. It's either good looking or good looks. One of the main characters in the book uses that prominently as a as sort of a solemn thank you um, to someone else in the book who helped him out. So I I liked I've always liked the phrase. It's concise. It means a lot. Um, so that's the title. Ah, well, thank you for the explanation. In the first scene of Good Looking, Joe Turner is attacked by the client he's representing. And I was wondering, as a criminal defense attorney, has anything like that ever happened to you? I mean, that was a slam right in those first few pages. It was a definite hook. Happily, no. There have been uh, situations when I've been in, in jails and in prisons where I felt a little vulnerable um, just because, you know, most of my clients have long histories of violent behavior. Um, thankfully, though, they usually see me as sort of the last line of defense between them and a long time in prison. Even if they don't trust me completely, they've usually realized that bashing my face in would not be conducive to good representation by me. So. It hasn't happened yet. Touch wood. I'll touch my desk right now. Thank you. Yes. Early in Good Looking, Joe receives a call from the Alameda County Court appointed program asking him to represent Darnell Moore, who is accused of murder. You go on to write that the court appointed program relies on private attorneys to represent the poor and needy in the county whenever the public defender's office declares a conflict of interest. Is this something you're asked to do in your own practice, and what constitutes a conflict of interest? Yes, um, I represent a number of people who are indigents in the city of Oakland. Conflicts of interest, usually it's as simple as the victim in a certain case, or the defendant in a certain case was once a victim. Or it's as simple as you and I rob a bank, Mandy, and the public defender's office represents you. Um, and we're both pointing the finger at each other. So it wouldn't do for the public defender to represent both of us. So in that situation, they, they call on one of the panel of um, attorneys who are qualified to take the case. And that leads me perfectly into my next question. Why did you choose criminal law, and why did you decide to represent mostly accused murderers in Oakland? Um, choosing criminal law, I think, was... Um, once I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, that was the only one that made sense to me. The decision to go to law school wasn't, wasn't altogether cut and dried. I graduated with a, with a degree in history, um, realized that I didn't necessarily want to teach, didn't necessarily want to work in a museum, so went to law school. But when I pictured lawyers, um, I pictured a, someone trying cases in a courtroom, standing in front of juries, persuading them. That's the part of the job that I love. And it turns out that uh, most attorneys don't do that. Most attorneys sit behind their desks for most of the day 
and uh, move around move around paper and parse contracts, and and that wasn't for me. So it wasn't like I had any great affinity for for crime <laughs> or the subject matter. I'll do, although I do think that there's a reason why they make movies out of uh, crimes and not the tax code, right? Yes, exactly. I can't imagine sitting through two hours of tax code information. So it was criminal defense made sense to me for those reasons. And then as far as murderers go, if you do it long enough, you sort of grow weary of DUIs and then you grow tired of domestic violence cases. And then you get your fill of drug cases um, and eventually murder cases sort of pop up and there, you know, the stakes are high and they're stressful. Um, but I also enjoy it for those reasons as well. Being in a courtroom, speaking to a jury, it's a form of storytelling, right? That's very perceptive. Yes. Um, I think that that's, the, it's no coincidence that that's the part of it that I like is closing argument, opening statement, when the law matters, but, you know, you're really just there with the jury attempting to persuade them, attempting to get them to see it your way. Um, and you, you, you're right, you're, you're telling the story of your client, you're telling the story of the defense to the jury. And that has translated, I think, to, to my writing. Or maybe, the, maybe my writing has, you know, um, helped in the courtroom as well. I'm guessing they probably both help each other. But in the same vein, law requires logic and factual writing. How do you find the switch to writing fiction and creative writing? And do you find it easy to switch back and forth? It was an, a bit of an adjustment initially because legal writing, the law promotes a very sort of turgid, boring style of writing um, where you have to you know, you can't write a sentence without citing to a particular case or a particular law. And that's the exact opposite of creative writing. So um, it was a bit of an adjustment period. But once I got rolling, I realized that it was just so, so much, so much easier and so much more enjoyable. Yeah, it was, a, it was an adjustment, but, but one that I happily made. Yeah, and in any field, especially in one such as law where you have a lot of stress and long hours, I'm sure it's great to have that creative outlet. Right, and um, yeah, for a lot of reasons. And so you're right, it is a good, a good stress release. On the other hand, the subject matter does give me just a, an endless supply of different ideas for, for stories. Usually, if I draw upon one of my actual ex experiences, I eventually conclude, oh, you know, no one will believe that <laughs> because they're, they're often just way stranger than fiction. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> now, what are your thoughts regarding jury selection, in particular racial injustices? And can you explain how juries are selected? I did a little research, and to be honest, I was kind of shocked at what I found. Yeah, there, it depends on the state for the most part. But in a lot of states, they take the prospective juror list from voter registration polls. And that seems patently unfair to me just because there's so many people who don't vote, so many um, racial minorities who are disenfranchised, who don't, don't feel that they have a candidate. Um, that's changing a little bit, obviously. What we end up with are a 
in Alameda County for a bunch of white jurors deciding the fate of a bunch of young African-American men. And I can't tell you how many times we've been sitting at the council table and my client, a young black man, turns around and looks at the potential juror pool and says, like, what in the world is happening here? Right. I, I live in Oakland, a, a predominantly black city. And um, so they're moving towards, however, taking the prospective juror list from things like uh, Department of Motor Vehicle Records, which is better. But there's still the problem of, you know, who wants to serve on a jury, who can afford to serve on a jury. People who get paid, um, but people who don't, you know, it's it's tough. And those that also oftentimes lines up along along racial lines. So it just makes um, makes my job very difficult when, for example, um, there are, you know, if there are gang allegations, right, and there's a rap video played, right, and the juror is filled with, with old white retirees who just have no, no basis of knowledge. No, all they know is like, you know, those are scary people. And um, it's, uh, it makes it very difficult for my clients to get a fair trial. You mentioned the change with the uh, jury selection going maybe to the DMV, but is there anything else you can think of that could happen quickly that would make this situation fairer? Um, yeah, I mean, in addition to the um, the source of the um, juror lists, I think that there should be stricter laws about employers paying for jury service. That would solve a lot of problems. And it's difficult for someone like myself who is self-employed and as are many of my creative friends, uh, you know, time is valuable. Time is money to us. So that is difficult. However, you know, I became an American citizen and I've been called up to jury duty, but I've never been selected. And in many ways, I, I mean, it's my civil duty. It's kind of what I signed up for to do my part by listening to facts and hopefully making a good decision. Uh, that's how I see it. It's, it's part of being an American citizen. Yeah, well, good for you, Mandy. I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear that. I think a lot of people say that, right? But I can't tell you the, the, the number of people who say that to a judge, but then follow it up with, but right now it's just not a good time because, right? And it's just, it's never going to be a good time, right? Um, I'm guessing it's not a good time for the person on the stand either. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, it is what makes, I think, the jury system the best is because it relies on um, a jury filled with individuals with from all walks of life from different different perspectives um and i think that um, there's something to be said for that and and if the juries are sort of all of one ilk then there's going to be injustices yeah and it must be so frightening for someone who is innocent on trial and to look around and see that it's an all-white older jury if they're a person of color, I can't even imagine. And I'm sure it doesn't make your job easier to try and calm them down. Right. Well, yeah. And, you know, that's something that, that I have to, um, that I have to deal with because, 
you know, the, the, the juror is, is watching the defendant at all times during a trial, especially when they read the charges. What's he accused of? He's accused of murder, and their eyes go right to him. Um, and if he al is already looking defeated or guilty, you know, it, then then that's that's it's something I have to watch out for. I have to, you know, it's a sort of a fine line too, Mandy. I don't I don't want to tell them that everything's going to be fine. Don't worry, <laughs> right? Because I don't know that. Um, but on the on the other hand, I don't want them just in the in the depths of despair during the trial itself. So. That's all good fodder for writing characters. It sounded like you were giving a lecture to a group of new writers and explaining to them what to look for in their characters. That's right. In episode three of the Bookshop podcast, I interviewed author and journalist Jill Wolfson, Jill's book, Somebody Else's Children, The Courts, The Kids, and The Struggle to Save America's Troubled Families, delves into the daily working and life-or-death decisions of a typical American family court system. Through The Beat Within, a publication of writing and art from the inside, Jill volunteers in a writing group for teens in Juvenile Hall. And after listening to poetry by her students, it's easy to see that programs such as The Beat Within are much needed and have the ability to help incarcerated children work through issues. Now, the twins in Good Lookin' are in foster care, and I'm guessing you have some legal experience with this topic. What changes would you like to see put in place to protect children in foster care? And does it boil down to underfunding and an overhaul of the entire foster program in America? Uh, I would agree with an overhaul. Um, I, and um, it's funny, I know, I know something about twins because I have a set of twins of my own. They would disagree and say that, no, Dad, you know nothing about twins. Of course, they're your kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as far as the foster system, um, I've, I've been exposed to it some because I've represented juveniles um, who were charged with crimes, and, and uh, an incredibly high percentage of them are in the foster system. Um, two things come to mind. One, it is part of what has become just a ginormous bureaucracy that has just too many, too many obstacles and, and, and too many regulations and too many people on the payroll. And I don't think the money is going where it should go. Having said that, the system itself, paying people to be parents, does just not seem like a very good system. And so I, it needs to be overhauled. I don't have the answers. But I do know that when you have thousands of young American couples who are, who are desperate to adopt, right, who go to Nepal and, and, and Indonesia to find um, someone to adopt, it seems like a solution could be found um, rescuing some kids from, from the foster system. And in your novel, you bring up this situation where you have a set of twins and they're in foster care and they have no food. And you did it so tenderly, but it was heartbreaking because in your book, the twins, like so many other children in foster care, are bounced around like a basketball from one family to another. Yeah, you know, I didn't mean to imply that there aren't obviously very good good foster parents that, that do a service and are, are in it for the right reasons. Um, but when you're talking about the number of foster kids, um, the percentage of those are going to be people who aren't, aren't in it for the right reasons. Um, and there's, there's, 
tons of abuses um, in the system by the parents, by stepdads of the parents, by boyfriends of the parents. Um, they're not their biological parents. They haven't signed up to adopt them. They're, they're doing it, at least a lot of them, to get a paycheck. Yeah, and I'd like to think that if there was a way we could support single parents a little better in this country so that they were able to spend time with their children, uh, there might not be so many children in foster care, perhaps. And the other sad thing about this is that it's not something that's just happening. This has been going on for years. It has, it has. And I, and I can echo that, that heartbreak from the kids' perspective, the ones that I've dealt with. Some of them have been not had good lives at the hands of the biological parents. But um, nonetheless, are, you know, they're their parents. And they're just, um, they're always going to be their, their parents. They're always going to know, at least a lot of them, that this person that is, that is raising me, they're not my parents. Um, and a lot of them just are desperate to be reunited with their bio biological parents. And sometimes that's possible. And sadly, sometimes it's not. Yeah. And sometimes it's the better of two evils. It's probably difficult to know. Yeah. Sorry for the, <laughs> such a depressing subject matter. Not at all. Not at all. This is why I do these Wednesday episodes, because when I have guests like you on the show, you have experience in this situation, and it's good to have these discussions, because a lot of people don't know what's going on in this situation. It's not like it's made up. Well, maybe some of it is for your book. That's right. What is one book, apart from your own, you'd like to see more people reading? Let me see. That's a good question. I, you know, I will say that I'm reading a lot of Louise Penny lately, and I think if you chose any of her books, um, if if I if you if you ask me what writer I would like to write like, it would be her. I mean, uh, the, the beautiful prose, the the fantastic plots, the character development, the turns of phrases. Uh, I would recommend if you if, if you like mysteries or thrillers or that genre at all read Louise Penny. And what about Joe Turner? Will we be seeing more of him in another novel? Uh, yes. Um, there's another one at the publisher. It's called Blood Perfect, a Joe Turner mystery, and released maybe by next summer. Well, congratulations first on Good Looking, and then your second novel coming out next year. TL, thank you so much for everything you do to make the world a better place. Your hard work is appreciated. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks for having me here. I enjoyed it very much. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the Coffee Fund or you'd like to financially support an episode, go to thebookshoppodcast.brusbout.com. Click on the orange heart in the top right corner of the page and you can donate using PayPal or you can email me at thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and I'll see you next time.